Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumboots on. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello. Great to have your company on Countrywide today. I'm Kit Mocken. I don't know where you're listening in from, but where I'm sitting, the weather is definitely heating up. And after years of delays this summer, you're going to see some new homegrown varieties of a certain type of fruit at the grocer. So we got yes, aha, and now. Yes, aha, and now. I wonder if you can guess what fruit she's talking about. Also, would you drink milk brewed in a lab? Not everyone is convinced. You're going to hear from both sides of the divide on that story in just a tick. But first today, it's been pretty hard to escape the Israel-Gaza war this week. There were some really shocking scenes just a week ago over the weekend where farmers in the south of Israel were among the first to be hit in the attacks by Hamas. And many farmers and young people working on the kibbutz along with foreign workers were killed or taken hostage. Amir Porat is the biggest grower of carrots in Israel and farms in the north where things are quieter. He explained to David Clawton what the impact has been on the farm sector so far. The south part of Israel, which is, I think, um, at least half or uh, around half of the the agriculture um, growing in in this part of Israel, uh, is absolutely mess. It's a war zone, so all the areas are, most of the areas are unreachable for the moment. And, Were those areas um, evacuated? Some some kibbutzes, which are the main, uh, the biggest maybe growers organization in the south, are evacuated or, you know, unfortunate. I, I spoke with, with, with a friend of mine there. He told me, Amir, look, the people, the ground, the ground workers, field workers even the type workers that that came to israel to work and provide to their families most of those people are gone they've been killed or have been taken a a lot a lot of the of the uh, field farmers were taking place in the in the um uh, teams of groups of uh, to guard the the kibbutz or or the place there were like the, the civilian uh, force of, of protecting the, the, the kibbutz, for instance. Yep. And the majority of them, naturally, because they're young, young people, men's, were, were from the fields from, of farmers. And those, those um, groups vanished, have been murdered. They even killed the Thai workers, which are foreigners in Israel. Uh, so... And just describe the agriculture in those areas. Is it, is it largely yeah, based yeah. on the so, kibbutz, or so is it what sort of things are they growing? The kibbutzes, the kibbutzes are um, big players on the agriculture in the south. In my industry, only maybe maybe sixty or seventy percent of the carrots is growing in the south part of of Israel. So, what impact is that having so, on on your business? My business is that I received a phone call. What Whatever I can do to enlarge, we are now uh, drilling, uh, we're sitting now, 
So whatever I can do to enlarge, um, and for, because they don't know what will be the damage yet for the fields themselves for now, to cover some of the losses expected in the south. So we will do everything we can to do that. Um, and they will also damage the, uh, the Hamas damaged the water. So a large pumping uh, station. Damage it. Yeah, so the pumping stations were damaged and burned and some of the fields uh, without the capability to, to, to water, to irrigate. Those areas as well are huge in citrus and avocados, which, by the way, were the places the, um, the second and the third day most of the tourists were hitting inside those orchards. That's what I, I heard. Hiding, you're right. Um, it's, everything is, is, is frozen and stopped. They cannot walk freely around. They cannot walk their farm. The, the border has been secured, though, hasn't it? So I'm, I'm the assuming border, they will be able to get the back. Control, yeah, yeah. The control seems to be back to Israel, but still, every every hour at least, uh, a few alarms. It's not hours. It's every few minutes, alarms and missiles being shot whenever they will fail in the, in the civilian area. Mm. So you sit in your living room and you have 15 seconds to run away from a rocket or missile or whatever. It's very right. hard to work that the farms that way. Yes. And the workers are uh, a big, put, uh, nobody knows the exact numbers, but a big uh, number of workers are gone. Right. Evacuated or gone. I, I know about a milk farm in Alumim, in, in one of the kibbutzes that them was hit very hard. They have no one to treat the cows. Uh, no way to water it. No one to milk the cows. So they will f- they will search for volunteers, and I know they found volunteers from other milk farms in the central of Israel or in the north that came to support. Otherwise, the cows will be damaged as well. Yeah. What about the ports? Are, are they also the ports, affected? Look, Haifa, Haifa port was working one hundred percent in the north. No changes in his schedule. Some ships, I, I understand, or I can, I can guess, uh, moved for that port. Ashdod, which is the main southern, western, uh, south, central port, naturally stopped and work irregularities. And so I know this morning, I think, is working. And so is that affecting um, imports as well? It like... cannot work naturally. No. Sorry? Is that affecting imports as well? I don't know. I, don't, I cannot tell you. I don't have the right information. I know the port, uh, at least every day, is stopped for a few hours mm. because of the alarms and the missiles. Would many farmers so be, be trained in the defence? Would many farmers be involved in any action in Gaza, do you think? I am a, I was a soldier, of course. I served in a special unit. I, was an, I am an officer. A, a lot of my friends, which are farmers, <laughs> the one who survived the first few days... Is is in the army now, right. um, because it's young people, young men, who called to the reserved to help the fight the war. Israeli farmer Amir Porat speaking there with David Clawton about the war in Israel. Israel, of course, is a really large farming country in the Middle East. You're listening to Countrywide across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Back home now and looking to the dairy industry. 
Milk brewed in a lab can't compete with the nutritional benefits of dairy produced by a cow. That's according to Dairy Australia after the announcement that lab-brewed milk company Eden Brew's non-animal milk could be available as early as 2025. The company, which is in partnership with the New South Wales-based cooperative Norco, has raised $25 million in investment, including $6 million from the Victorian government. Here's Eden Brew's CEO, Jim Fader, on what he had to say about the company's plans as well as the taste and environmental footprint of precision fermented milk. So Eden Brew uh, is a business using precision fermentation to brew casein proteins uh, and then we are able to encourage those casein proteins to form the casein micelle much like the casein micelle is formed inside the cow. We're looking to very closely emulate the dairy sensory experience and the nutritional profile of dairy milk. Why are you looking to emulate something that is produced by cows the world over already? Uh, Because we're going to need a lot more of it. As economies get more prosperous uh, and people earn more money, they make different choices. And so that is going to drive, whether it's beef, lamb, chicken, pork, dairy, up to a doubling of demand in protein over the next 30 years. So it's it's less about replacing what's already here and it's more about augmenting supply because we've got to make a lot more food really quickly. The milk pool in Australia has been dropping year on year, I think, over the past decade. Could what you're producing perhaps plug some of that gap? Uh, 100%. I mean, we're really proud to be co-founded by Norco. And our business model is to brew the proteins centrally at scale because they're quite expensive. So that's to get to least cost, turn it into a powder. We then send those powders up to Norco who rehydrate them, uh, blend with other ingredients. And then at that point, really treat it as if it was raw milk from a dairy farm. So it goes down their existing milk production line uh, into you know, through the bottling machines out onto the trucks. Uh, and, and what is happening in terms of business development? with Eden Brew? Uh, so we're relatively early. We're um, at, the, at the stage of making prototype products and scaling the science. So we can make the product in uh, like a 10-litre fermenter, but we need to brew the proteins in a 100,000-litre fermenter to get the costs down to um, close to what someone would be willing to pay. Um, so that's about another 12 months to, to get that process done. And the uh, capital raise of $25 million we announced is really about unlocking um, all of that activity. In parallel, we're doing a lot of work around what our go-to-market strategy is, So, and we also need to put a Fazant's application in, which is about 12 months to gain approval. Where did that $25 million capital investment come from? A raft of different investors. Uh, so Main Sequence Ventures, who is our um, incumbent main shareholder, led this investment. But then uh, we we're very proud to also achieve a large investment from Breakthrough Victoria. So they'll put in up, up to $6 million um, in this round. Um, And then we've got um, investment from venture capitalists in America, uh, from uh, large businesses in Europe, from high net worth individuals and uh, private equity uh, in Asia and Australia. And then uh, to cap it off, we've also um, got some money from uh, some investment from high profile uh, celebrities in the music industry in Australia. 
And what about um, energy and water inputs? Dairy can be quite intensive in terms of energy use and water use. Uh, I think energy could be as much as 50% of the cost of running the fermentation plant. Uh, so renewable energy is really important. Utility management and, um, and managing waste is really important, uh, like all manufacturing processes. Uh, in terms of water, we, we will use a fraction of the water that is um, required within the dairy industry and within um, plant-based milks. Um, and uh, we, at this point in time, forecast to be under 10 litres of water for one litre of milk produced. And how does that compare with dairy? So dairy is around about 1,000 litres, um, and almond milk, for example, is around about 6,000 litres per one, one litre made. Eden Brew CEO Jim Fader speaking there. Well, Dairy Australia's Sustainable Dairy Nutrition Manager, Melissa Cameron, says dairy remains in a strong position, particularly when it comes to price. These products still have quite a way to go in terms of the technology to develop them as an actual final end product. Um, uh, They've got the investment and also regulation from food standards. I think also from a, a, you know, to deliver that milk uh, taste, mouthfeel functionality and nutrition that uh, cow's milk has is is going to, you know, be quite a sort of a feat as well. Uh, Eden Brew will create some proteins and then to add that to become a beverage they're going to have to add carbohydrates fats vitamins and minerals to get something that looks and tastes um, like milk cost will also be a a bit of a thing so I I think at the moment um, it will be quite a way off Um, and it's really up to consumer perceptions we know that milk cheese and yogurt is really well loved and consumed by Australians so um, at, at this stage we uh, we see that consumers will continue to consume dairy products as as they are are there concerns around the nutritional profile of some of these synthesised food products? It's really hard to know because they haven't delivered a, a final product yet. So, as I said, they can replicate uh, a few key proteins. There's a lot more proteins that occur in natural milk and then they need to add um, ingredients that will deliver the fat, carbohydrate, vitamins and minerals. So it'll be really a, a combined product to get that end product that will meet will look, taste, function like dairy milk. Dairy milk has the natural nutrition in it, so it won't be able to compare on a nutritional and um, perspective, I think, in the end. But it's still a bit of time off to understand what that will look like in the end. What does the future of dairy look like with some of these um, synthetic products? Is there research and development happening on the dairy side to Uh, put dairy in a competitive position or do you feel like dairy is already in a strong position going forwards? Dairy is in an incredibly strong position going forward. recommended within the dietary guidelines. It's safe, convenient, affordable. It's well researched, um, consumed for thousands and thousands of years and has really good evidence around health outcomes. So I, I think dairy will maintain a really strong position, particularly around that affordability that we're seeing at the moment. Eden Brew has said that they use around 10 litres of water to produce a litre of their precision fermented milk. They say that energy is really going to be their, their greatest input. I would agree. So there's, there's been some research, there's a couple of papers coming out that are comparing the water footprint of milk versus this sort of cellular agriculture and defining that the, the environmental footprints are pretty similar from that sort of greenhouse gas emissions because of the electricity and power used for the synthetic products versus, you know, from, from the cow. So there's not a lot of difference in that end product at, at this stage um, between the, the products. A lot of stainless steel and a lot of energy required and a lot of cleaning and water used. 
from your perspective, do the environmental credentials of cow-produced milk and synthetic milk match up, essentially? At the moment, they're on a bit of a par, yes. And I'm sure they'll be working hard to improve their sustainability credentials, just as the dairy industry is. We have an Australian uh, dairy sustainability framework. We've got significant investment and commitments to reducing all of our environmental footprints um, over time. I'm sure that they'll be working the same as well. Mm, on par. That's Dairy Australia's Sustainable Dairy Nutrition Manager, Melissa Cameron, speaking with Fiona Broom. I'm Kit Mocken. You're listening to Countrywide. Do you remember the National Carp Control Plan? The more than $15 million initiative started in 2016 to investigate whether or not to release a herpes virus to control the invasive fish in Australian waterways. Now, about a year after Fisheries Research and Development Corporation handed down a huge report, the federal and state government agricultural ministers have agreed to proceed with further research, which could take a few more years and possibly even more funding. Australia's Chief Environmental Biosecurity Officer, Bertie Henneke, told Eliza Blage that the additional research will focus on five priorities. The next step now is actually to go ahead with those aspects and looking at those research, there were about five, I think, priorities that they narrowed it down to, as I mentioned before. And so there will be now scientific committee, advisory committee that will reform. That was already there before, looking at some of the research over the years. They will reform and actually look carefully at these priorities, what exactly needs to be done, what is included in that research, and potentially bring international researchers into this too. So... Uh, they can complete this research. research. And some of these will be, I guess, a little bit stop and go. So they're really important aspects in terms of is it actually uh, feasible to release the carb virus? Because at the end of the day, we want to be really making sure that the carb virus is, doesn't cause any risk. So it's safe it is, and, it, and it is effective to be released and actually that's what it's supposed to do. I should also mention, Elisa, that That's only one part of the work that needs to be done. Once this research is completed, then it's ultimately to all states and territories to approve the release of the virus. So it still has to go through some processes in terms of getting approval from the APVMA to release the virus into the environment. And also each state and territory, as well as the environment department, have to go through their approval process under the legislations to make sure that that the virus can be released. So we're still looking at a few years before the virus actually gets released. And have any states or territories indicated that they um, declared or indicated that they would be supportive of releasing the virus? At the moment, all states and territories are still supporting the research, and that was part of the ACMIN meeting too, you know, that they all agreed this is worthwhile continuing, so the support is there. But again, it is at this stage, as I said, it's far too early to really have a clear understanding if we're releasing it because there's still some research to be done and then God, we need to go to those other aspects to make sure that everyone agrees to the release of the virus into the environment because, again, we want to be really sure that it's safe and sound to release the virus and 
state that it's feasible actually so it's it's controlling carp uh, and does the job that it actually promised or that we think it should do. And Bertie, you mentioned some um, international researchers would be involved in this research. Were international researchers involved in the previous research? I think there were some considerations. So they were involved in providing advice. Since we're now getting to the point where potentially, and again, this needs to be discussed further by the scientific advisory group, some research needs to be done, field research. And we, we don't have the virus in Australia, so this research needs to be done overseas. And there are some countries, and I understand Israel and some other countries, have used the virus or the, they're using the virus. And so we were looking for potentially bringing some of these expertise in so we have a better understanding how the virus actually behaves and what it does in the field once it's released or out in the environment. And that's, again, as I said, the Scientific Advisory Committee will have to make a decision what impact they want from international scientists, you know, the contributions or the advice they're seeking from them. And that could be just some advice or that they are invited for some of the committees or the, the scientific committees to be uh, to sit on and, and, you know, provide their advice through those, through those arrangements. Australia's Chief Environmental Biosecurity Officer, Bertie Hanicki, speaking there with Eliza Balage. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. It's been more than two weeks now since the switch from trying to eradicate the varroa mite to managing the pest. Varroa is a tiny parasitic mite that kills honeybee colonies, which is bad news for the honey industry, as well as the farmers who rely on bees for pollination. Tummit beekeeper John Casey had more than 2,000 hives in an affected almond orchard. He has made the difficult decision to leave them behind for voluntary euthanasia. Mr Casey told Emily Doak he's lost a quarter of his hives and it will have a big impact on his business. I already had 6,000 hives where we were clean and had no, no varroa, so I didn't want to take the other 2,016 and investigate the whole lot of them. So uh, just give me a little bit of a, an indication. How much of, of your total hive production does that 2,000 hives account for? Um, those 2,016 were honey hives, so I'm not sure exactly how much how many kilos was lost, lost off them, but a fair bit. I've had to um, put a, uh, a couple of workers off because I lost that many hives, and yeah, they say it's sort of about the 500 hives per person, so I would have lost, had to lose four workers. At this stage, you've made this difficult decision that you didn't want to risk infecting the rest of your hives, and so you've left them there. Do you know what's happened to them at the moment? At the moment, I don't think they've had the manpower to do anything with them. They're still sitting there. They um, would be almost destroyed themselves anyway by killing each other and um, swarming and yeah, just no one's looking after you. Can't leave hives, any beehives anywhere, and not look after them. They'll just um, deteriorate and die. So, as a beekeeper, how do you feel about that? Uh, not real good, but there's nothing else I can do. I got you know, like if I bring them home and infect the whole lot, the rest of them I got there, the other six thousand, I'd be in bigger mess when we ain't got in Australia yet the right resources to 
go yet to um, treat the hives. And in terms of um, making that decision, um, are you aware yet what sort of compensation that you'll be offered um, in terms of the, the loss of those 2,000 hives? Not really, or just in the process of doing it. It's a little bit confusing because you sort of can't work out exactly what they were. But anyway, at the moment, we're, as we speak, we're filling out the forms and going from there. Having been caught up in this, what's your assessment of how the management of this pest has, has played out in terms of your business and the impact it's had? Yeah, 100%. It's infected the business. It will affect all business. And I think it'll take a lot of beekeepers away. They won't, they won't have bees because they'll be too hard to look after. John Casey from Snowy Mountains Honey at Tummet speaking there with Emily Doak. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm Kit Mocken. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. As the mango season heats up in northern Australia, keep your eyes peeled in the supermarket for some new varieties. They're called Yes, Uh-huh and Now. As Matt Brand reports, these three new mangoes have been decades in the making. Do the mango bango, we all go bongo for Around 25 years ago, the National Mango Breeding Program created three new varieties of mango, which promised to taste great, look better, yield better, and have a bunch of other positive attributes. But for years, these mangoes languished on research farms and their commercial rollout was bungled a few times. But last year, the company Mambaloo Mangoes was awarded the commercialisation rights and these mangoes will now be seen in supermarkets this season and they've finally got names. One is called Yes, the Yes Mango. The second one that usually um, is mature a little later than the Yes one is called Aha. The latest season one, which comes in after the first two, is called the Now Mango. So we've got Yes, Aha and Now. That is Marie Picconi from Mambaloo Mangoes, who says more trees are being planted and she thinks these mangoes have got a big future. The good news is that all three varieties have flowered very well in all the production regions and there's crops sitting on the tree. Uh, We're expecting double the production that we had last year out of the three new project flavour mangoes. We think they've got a tremendous future. So it's going well. We've got lots of demand from export markets. We're really just sending samples at the moment because we've got to get the trees in the ground all growing up so that the yield and the production volumes are higher and there are new plantings going in so that we can just meet the demand as it's growing, we're going to try to grow with the demand here in Australia and in global markets. Raymond Bin is a mango grower in far north Queensland. And back in 2010, he was one of the first to sign up to these hybrid varieties and plant some trees. He told Charlie McKillop that he's long believed in them and is excited to finally see the commercial rollout. Look, the names are definitely, people would just say that they're different. Like everyone that decided to, they do sort of, it takes them back. Yeah, they are different names, but um, on saying that, they are catchy for that reason. And I think, look, it may actually hit the mark. Like they're very simple names. And um, yeah, look, it may just just work. So yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. 
Ian Baker was involved in the early days of the National Mango Breeding Program and can actually remember eating these varieties in the late 1990s. He says to see them being named and rolled out commercially is significant. Oh, for, for me, this is a long, long project and it's great to hear. And I think um, Marie Piconi at Man Blue Mangoes will do the right job commercialising this. There's growers out there got them now. Uh, not a lot, but they're out there, so we'll start to see them on the shelves. So, yeah, the, fu- the future for these things is great. You tasted them some 25 years ago. Why has it yep. taken so long for them to reach so, this point? Yeah, so breeding tree crops is hard. It's hard to actually do the breeding bit, like they're making, doing the cross-pollinations. All that takes a long, long time. The hard bit, though, in this case, has been getting the commercialisation right, and that's where this has fallen over a number of times, and that's why I think Manblue Mangoes and Marie especially probably going to make the difference here. Um, I've got friends of mine who planted significant numbers of them, and um, they've look, been down the farm and had a look, and uh, look, they look great. Good things come to those who wait. That was Ian Baker, who was involved in the early days of the National Mango Breeding Program, speaking to Matt Bran. That's all we have time for this week on Countrywide. I'm Kit Mocken. It's been great having your company. Bye for now. <laughs>